Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast with me, Steve Richards. Before we begin to reflect on the extraordinary drama being played out between Johnson, Cummings, the rest of the cabinet and indeed the country, just want to say thank you to those of you who tuned in to the live virtual rock and roll politics uh, on Monday night, these uh, surreal virtual shows from a room in my house, and to those of you who tuned in afterwards and watched the um, recording of the show and also for those of you who donated we got loads of donations more than the first show so I've done two of these virtual shows and there's another one coming up in June and I'll give you more details of that nearer the time but enough of that let's get straight to this drama of course I've, I've been planning by the way to record this on certain times and thought I can't do it because something might happen in the Cummings drama, and it still might. Of course, there are twists and turns on a near hourly basis, but let's go ahead anyway, because what I'm going to say is timeless, irrespective of what happens. At least I think it more or less is. First of all, isn't it interesting that, to go back to a theme of an earlier podcast, there is no one in this number 10 operation who dares to stand up to Cummings and Johnson, dares to say before they embark on a press conference of, for them, huge nerve-shredding significance, are you sure we've got that absolutely right? Is what we are saying there bomb-proof, to use the phrase that um, Blair used to use in advance of any public announcements? And before Cummings gave his extraordinary briefing in the Downing Street Garden, incidentally fascinating in itself. No one in number 10, as far as I can tell, thought it was odd that this unelected senior advisor was giving a press briefing in the glamorous setting of that garden, because internally he's so powerful and so influential that it seemed to them a natural extension to allow him the glamorous context of that garden to give the press briefing. And in fairness, they did it as well, so that journalists could be there in the outdoors safely asking questions. But otherwise, it would have been inside number 10. He's so powerful that they didn't see it as odd. But some outsiders, some viewers must have thought, who is this guy sitting in the garden telling the world what he was up to? But that was interesting. But more so was that no one said to Cummings, no equivalent to, say, Alistair Campbell, who could tell Blair if he was planning to do something which was, you know, rubbish to quote, you know, that's rubbish, Tony, you can't do that, do this. And they spent ages clearly preparing the statement. When Cummings said to various advisors that I'm going to say, in terms of my drive to Barnard Castle, that I was doing it because my eyesight was weird and therefore needed the equivalent of an eye test to drive to Barnard Castle before going to London, you would have thought some advisor might have said, are you sure that's bomb-proof? Are we saying that drive to Barnard Castle was done as a kind of eye test? Will that not be at best mocked, at worst regarded as a lie, as an excuse for a nice trip out to the countryside on Easter day, on your wife's birthday, would it not be better to be more frank? 
or did maybe they did say that and Cummings assisted was the truth and then they should have said but it seems so absurd is there not a better more compelling convincing narrative that fits with the facts that we could issue but these discussions clearly don't go on because it was one of several bizarre moments in the Cummings statement and one of the problems with this number 10 operation which is in effect the vote leave campaign transferred to government which is about detailed policy getting systems to work not winning campaigns is that it's unequal hugely unequal they are all terrified of Johnson and Cummings Johnson because of his powers of patronage Cummings because he is a an intimidating figure who has the power to sack people left right and center as he has already shown and so they're allowed to go and make huge mistakes i reflected already on johnson's tv broadcast about the lockdown exit strategy that was so full of holes it wasn't even clear when the policies were meant to be implemented some of them were contradictory and clearly no one dared say are you sure that's right? Are you sure that's comprehensible? Are you sure that's bomb-proof? Because if they had, it would have been a different statement. And same with Cummings as he walked into the Downing Street Garden to give his remarkable press conference the other day. What is also interesting at the moment, although this might change, is the power of number 10. It's not based on competence. It's not based on a sense of natural authority. It is based on the election win in December. The reality is, and it is absolutely essential in understanding what's going on, that Johnson and Cummings, almost together, won a majority of 80 only a few months ago. And therefore, if ministers of any ambition are asked to tweet humiliating tweets backing Cummings, they do so. Not all of them, actually, but most. And that, too, is part of the whole dynamic. You know, there is speculation sometimes, you know, what does Rishi Sunak plan to do uh, with the economy in response to the virus and all the borrowing that's going on? The answer is, at the moment, number 10 will tell him what to do in the way that number 10 told him to tweet a pathetic tweet of support for Cummings at the weekend. He did two tweets at their instruction. A powerful chancellor capable of acting independently would have refused because it was so embarrassing, cringe-making, and a threat to his currently buoyant reputation as successful new chancellor. We're all in it together was one of the phrases he used and whatever it takes is one of the phrases he has used. And there he was tweeting that Cummings in protecting uh, his child or thinking about his child would do exactly as the rest of us would do. And there they were because that's still where the power lies. And yet you sense even as we are following this drama that that authority is fading. The few days that followed Friday night when the story broke, I think will fascinate historians for years and years to come. Because one, 
minister after another, starting with the prime minister, was live on television, at press conferences or in interviews, in effect making things up in a way that was obvious. All politicians uh, have to be evasive at times, and I've got a great deal of sympathy for that uh, need to be evasive. Sometimes interviewers design interviews so politicians can't be candid. If they answered, the next sentence would be, and therefore I resign. So there is a necessity to be evasive at times. But what happened over that weekend was extraordinary. Sentences uttered which they knew to be at odds with the truth, one after another, live, played out on all kinds of broadcasting outlets. Put at its most basic, even Cummings, with those weird explanations as to what he was up to over his uh, time in Durham, basically said even though, he didn't say this, of course, because he doesn't claim to have broken the guidelines. The guidelines were absolutely clear. Anyone with symptoms of the virus should stay home, their main home, their main residence, and isolate for, I think it was at that point, seven days. He didn't do that. He uh, rushed up to Durham in a car, possibly catching the thing himself if he hadn't already caught it. So, Here was an open admission, really, that the guidelines were broken. Similarly, the story about Barnard Castle and doing this drive for an eyesight test, although making Monty Python seem perfectly unsilly and normal, is also a bit of a sideshow. He was, in effect, admitting that he broke another guideline. I remember checking because we wanted to go for a walk in the countryside during this period and wondered whether the sort of hours exercise could be done in the countryside and it's absolutely clear that you were meant to do it in your local area it's in the guidelines I thought it's just not worth it it's just not even let's just go again to the local park park that I've got to know so well in recent times but he didn't he went for his drive to Barna Castle for an eyesight test as uh, as we now all know so so even within the inconsistent statements and assertions there was an acceptance that the guidelines at least as understood and indeed printed on government websites were violated but on they go defending him you know there they all out there what's his name Matt Hancock tweeting away he did absolutely the right thing Boris Johnson following the instincts of any parent as if Other parents did not have those instincts, but decided instead to follow the rules. That's the difference. They are rewriting their own guidelines retrospectively to hold on to Cummings. And that, of course, uh, brings us to a really interesting question. Why do they go to such lengths, given the hit after hit they are taking in terms of their perceptions of their authority, credibility, integrity, and so on. And incidentally, also taking what I think for Cummings, Cummings isn't bothered what journalists think, probably thinks voters have been brainwashed by loathsome journalists and all the rest of it. But I think he too, he he clearly thinks from his past record that he has a capacity to speak for the people. 
even though he came from a privileged background and now lives in Islington and has a privileged life and a powerful one and is absolutely part of the elite, I think because he comes from County Durham, he thinks he can speak for the people and understand the people and that the people share his loathing of, in inverted commas, the London metropolitan elite, Europe, in inverted commas. His loathing of Europe is partly based on issues to do with accountability, and and they are perfectly valid arguments, but he has also a loathing of Europe. And he thinks he speaks, uh, in inverted commas, not not the geographical entity, about what he regards in in a way that is wholly mythological. He kind of sees this huge anti-democratic body constraining this great British economy and its great people who, when liberated, can become a kind of high-tech, sci-fi, dream world, Los Angeles writ large. It's a fantasy, but... In framing these fantasies, he has always believed he spoke for the people and, of course, did that juxtaposition, the people versus the elite last autumn when putting the case for implementing Brexit and a hard Brexit. And in the election, too, these Etonians like Boris Johnson were speaking for the people against the elites. And I think he will find that bit of it hard to take that he is now seen as so much part of a pampered elite, he could defy his own instructions in the midst of this unprecedented pandemic. Whereas the people were obeying the instructions, he, without feeling remotely apologetic, felt able to challenge them, and therefore becomes part of the most cosseted elite that is imaginable part of a number 10 operation that first of all he defies the instructions then claims the instructions were different to what they were and that he hadn't defied them and the framing of the headlines about him being part of a pampered elite although he is self-confident enough in his fantastical views I think not to feel that this is the truth will disturb him a bit that people will no longer see him as the people's great prophet but he's gone to the other side. He's part of the elite. That is one of the many hits Johnson has taken to protect him. If he continues to do so, by the time you listen to this, that protective seal might have gone. But either way, it raises the key interesting question, why? What is the hold that Cummings has over Johnson? First of all, it's not at all unusual for prime ministers to feel a dependency on their chosen top advisor or or advisers. I mentioned already that uh, Tony Blair relied heavily on Alistair Campbell, but he also relied heavily on Peter Mandelson, who he sacked twice, both times unfairly in my view, and certainly Mandelson was nowhere near as culpable in the various accusations made against him as Cummings is now in relation to the violations of the guidelines or alleged violations of the guidelines. Uh, But he was sacked twice and Blair found it painful, but he did it. As I say, I think he was probably wrong. But Johnson has done the opposite. 
other prime ministers really dependent. Uh, Harold Wilson would never get rid of Marcia Williams, even though other senior aides, Bernard Donoghue, Joe Haynes, loathed Marcia Williams, couldn't cope with her. Harold Wilson remained wholly attached to her and would, I think, have done nothing to bring about her demise. Although, again, I wonder whether Wilson would have clung on to her in the context of what Cummings had got up to. So it's not unusual for prime ministers to feel devoted to those they have chosen to come on their journey with them. But this takes us into another league. Johnson's dependency on Cummings wholly outstrips the dependency of Wilson on Marcia Williams, Blair on Peter Manston, Alistair Campbell. Uh, he's already shown that when Cummings demanded that he sack Javid if Javid, as Chancellor, was not willing to sack his own special advisers. And so Johnson went ahead, even though he said to Javid, I, I, I great admire regard you as a good friend, uh, but, you know, we, we, these advisers, you great. And he basically carried out Cummings' command because Cummings saw that as a condition of him being at the heart of the operation. And now we have seen Johnson speak at odds with reality and the truth again and again and again to defend him, get cabinet ministers to do it, and so on. Why? Part of the reason, I think, is that Johnson is not a great judge of people or politicians. He hasn't spent a great deal of time in the company of politicians. He is not a collegiate politician. He was a loner when he was an MP at Westminster on the whole. As Mayor of London, you are a single figure presiding over your mini terrain. And he hasn't really got close political allies. And he has come to be a great admirer of Cummings, and much more so than the cabinet that he could do without most of them. I think only Gove is a key figure at the moment and clearly Gove is close to Cummings and was also keen for Cummings to stay to the point where Gove gave an interview to LBC where he said apparently that he too drove to test his eyes every now and again or something utterly surreal. Anyway, Johnson, whenever Cummings comes into a room, his eyes light up, he clearly thinks Cummings is a genius without which he cannot survive. Johnson himself arrives in his various offices, including this one, without a clear idea what to do, why he want, would want to do it, or indeed how to do it. Um, as mayor of London, he inherited Ken Livingstone's plans, for example, for the bikes that became Boris Bikes. I suspect he would not have instigated it himself. As foreign secretary, Theresa May made him wholly marginal to the key foreign affairs issues, whether they were Brexit or anything else. And that's it, really, in terms of his political career. Even when he was at The Spectator, I'm told he wasn't around that much as editor. And so he doesn't really know many people. But he thinks Cummings delivered the 2016 Brexit referendum. And he thinks Cummings delivered, in effect, Brexit for him when he became Prime Minister. It was Cummings who told him to do all those ruthless things, you know, sacking everyone, turning Philip Hammond into a Che Guevara-type rebel by removing the whip. This was Cummings, but it worked. It meant that the Tory party had a clear message in the general election, 
and it was sort of Cummings' overall aggression of you know, just talk about an election that in the end got them one when they wanted it while still on a honeymoon as a new prime minister. They were very lucky in their opposition, particularly Joe Swinson, who agreed to the election date uh, when it was going to lead to her doom, and then Jeremy Corbyn, also leading to his doom. But it was Cummings that gave him guidance. He arrived not knowing really what to do. He's not even that clear about Brexit itself. For him now, it has become less about the substance than the politics. If you listen to him during the leadership campaign, he made it clear that if they didn't get Brexit done, Farage would be flourishing with the Brexit party. I think he described it as an existential crisis for the Conservative Party. So his journey has been of uncertain advocate of Brexit during the referendum. He contemplated, as we all know, campaigning for Remain, to then winning and deciding that it had become politically essential for it to be implemented for the sake of the Tory party and to honour a referendum. But he hadn't thought through the substance, whereas Cummings has been an obsessive Brexiteer for years, as has Gove. So Gove Cummings drives everything, but Cummings is the figure that gives Johnson the sense of a map in his new post, which on one level, and this is another factor, he knows he is completely out of his depth to cope with. Only on one level, of course. It happens to other prime ministers. They discover quite quickly that what they thought would be a glamorous post becomes one of impossible burdens. And if you look, I don't want to sound like some psychedelic weirdo, but I am going to be a psychedelic weirdo for a second. If you look at Johnson's eyes in the rare times he appears in public, they have a sort of melancholic hint about them, a sort of fearful hint. And I think there is enough self-awareness to know he's taken on something which is way, way above his capacity his experience, and so on. But with Cummings, I think he has decided he can do it. He can be the historic Prime Minister who delivers Brexit, who reconfigures the British economy, who makes the north of England Tory territory, a figure, therefore, as historic as his heroes like Churchill. And his means to do it can be at times Trumpian. They are in number 10, that vote leave lot, admirers of the Trump technique of blustering your way through. Johnson has always done it. Words have only meant things to him the moment they were uttered. If there were consequences later on that contradicted those words, uh, he would have forgotten the words were uttered in the first place. And so that's why he clings on to Cummings. He thinks Cummings can guide him to victory within Parliament, within his party, within the country but also provide with Gove a route map of substance, with Brexit, of course, being one of them. And that's the other thing. They see everything through the prism of Brexit. It was very revealing when Cummings at one of those frenzied doorsteps, and I have a sympathy with Cummings about those doorsteps. They're a form of hell for anyone who experiences them, and it shows the degree that this shallow revolutionary wants to implement his revolution that he's willing to put up with all of that hell 
to uh, continue pursuing his, what I regard as fantastical ideas. But Johnson now is in a place which is very different from where he was after that December election victory. A prime minister who has discovered that he is not in a place of great glamour, but of arduous, nightmarish dilemmas. It reminds me a bit of uh, the completely different characters of John Major after his 1992 election win. That win was an epic triumph for John Major, the fourth Conservative victory, his first election win, therefore theoretically greatly authority-enhancing. But within months, of course, Major and co. presided over Britain's withdrawal from the exchange rate mechanism in a day of humiliating drama, and Major never recovered from it. He was never ahead in the polls again, and he became much less self-confident from a figure who dared to wonder whether he had those unique, almost magical qualities of leadership. He had got the crown, so many ate for it, Michael Heseltine and others in his era. He was the one who got it. He was the one who won an election. And then he realised he wasn't up to some of the titanic demands. Johnson, too, uh, won an election. Even bigger triumph in terms of seats, the majors, in December. He must have dared to wonder whether he had this magical touch that he always hoped he did have from his days at Eton, deeply competitive, wanted to win everything, wanted to get to the top. And now he faces this range of impossible dilemmas, ones that involve to resolve successfully great attention to detail, a huge awareness of consequences of what you say and do. This is one of the other interesting things about the Cummings drama. When they decided a way of getting out of it was to pretend the guidelines were much looser than they were, they didn't consider that one of the consequences would be the scientists saying, this has undone the entire messaging strategy of lockdown. Again, some advisors should have said, well, if we say that, how are we going to have any authority in the future in terms of a lockdown now or or?" maybe in the need to impose another one if there's a second peak. And so a great leader has awareness of consequence. Great leader, too, also has a capacity to communicate at all times. And that's quite interesting with this vote-leave entourage that um, the capacity to communicate is so limited. Johnson has never been a great communicator. He can mouth slogans, get get Brexit done, let's get it done. And Cummings, too, is this tentative, hesitant speaker, but that's fine. He's a behind-the-scenes figure, not a public figure. But he, too, is struggling, uh, Johnson, to find the language to deal with the many dilemmas. And if he chooses to deceive or to contort what has happened, that, too, demands incredible language and agility in terms of linguistic skill and it doesn't seem to be there so you know what can I say a majority of 80 is going to be there for some time to come many people speculated for years that John Major would be 
thrown off his perch, but he continued all the way through to 1997 after the appalling experience of the ERM drama in September 1992. That big majority of 80 is a massive protective shield, a real one, not the pretend one they claim to have thrown over care homes from the beginning, and not as transient as the shields they can throw over people like Cummings. That is a permanent context and remains just about his only ace as he really struggles to stay afloat in this pandemic nightmare for all of us, but one that he hadn't anticipated when he contemplated the glamours of being in number 10 and all the country homes he has access to and all the trips abroad and the rest of it. Anyway, this is fast moving. There could well be an extra podcast special if uh, uh, things develop in certain ways over the coming days. If not, I'll be back within seven days anyway. And I say more details of the next live virtual show from a room in my house. Thank you very much for listening today and see you next time.